0: Hey, everybody. Magnus here. You know... It's been kind of a fucked-up week. (sighs) You know, I remember... When I was in college, having... You know, these weird adventures... You know, fucked-up weeks where... By the time you get to Friday... The stuff that you did on Monday seems like it happened a million years ago in another lifetime on a different planet, you know? And I think that's just kind of the nature of college. I don't know what it is, but something about the college existence just lends itself to these just sort of weird, fucked up adventures. But they're a little bit more rare, at least for me, in my adult life, where you know you're just so fucking crazy busy that before you it feels like before you even have a chance to look around and take stock of the situation holy shit an entire week has gone by and all of this weird shit has happened and at least in my experience the I guess the procession of these types of events can be really exhausting and that's where I find myself on this, I don't know, I guess it's technically Saturday morning, but at least from my standpoint, it's one thirty in the morning on a Friday night, even though that's technically one thirty on a Saturday morning, but whatever, that's where we are. I haven't made too big a stink out of this in public because... You know, certain things, they really are mine, you know, just sort of private, but a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine took me off of his Facebook friend list, he blocked me on Facebook, he seems to have blocked my phone number on his phone, and I'm, what I assume from all of this is we're not friends anymore. Now, the thing is, you know, I mean, I've known this guy ever since he and I were 14, you know, and I would say that we've been friends ever since we were 18, you know, so, you know, I don't that's a pretty long time, you know, not quite 20 years, but that's a pretty long time to be friends with somebody, you know? And, you know, the reality is, you know, sometimes, you know, in life, unfortunate things happen, you know? And one of the things that I just hate, hate, fucking hate when people say, is first world problems, you know, as if being an American means you're not allowed to have uh, personal challenges of your own or something like that. It's just, it's fucking retarded. It's the self-loathing, white guilt-inducing, just fucking bullshit attitude. It just, it fucking pisses me off. But, you know, I mean, it was maybe clever once or twice, but then it, but then it it turned into 2009, and it's just it's fucking not funny anymore. Especially since we're way past that now, and I don't know. It just it fucking pisses me off when people say that. So anyway, but so to some of you though, this may seem like that kind of douchebaggy expression, first world problems. But you know, I mean, I'm sorry. You you have somebody in your life for that you know for that long, and what, you're just not supposed to think about it if they, for reasons that are never expressed to you, they just decide, you know what, hey, I'm not talking to you anymore, I don't want to have anything to do with you, just go the fuck away. No explanation, you know, no nothing like that, it just, it's gone. I don't know. That is, nevertheless, where I find myself. And you know, the thing is, when I really start thinking back on things, the beginning of the end really seemed to be starting m- me starting up with Stacy, my girlfriend. You know, that seems like that's where, I don't know, just this weird sort of distance seemed to creep into the friendship where it's it was like there was some kind of weird, fucked up resentment... Or jealousy, or, or or something. I don't know. I could never really shake it. But it was this, and for a long time. I mean, I'm. I'll I'll be real with you. It. It wasn't something that I, really thought all that much about. You know, because in life, you know, sometimes when you have a conflict with somebody, you never really know if you're in fact having a conflict with them, or. Is it all in your head? Does that make sense? Am I imagining this? Or is there really a problem here? Well, I erred on the side of acting like nothing was wrong. Who knew? The other thing, though, is... It's only sometimes whenever you get a little bit of distance from from something that you realize that certain friendships really aren't worth your while. And I don't mean that from the standpoint of somebody being uh, an enabler or a bad influence or something like that. I mean, look, if you're an alcoholic and your best friend loves going to wine tasting parties you may need to rethink your social life. It's just a reality. But, and and I don't mean that. I guess what I mean is, there are certain people who aren't really worth your time, almost from the angle that they're holding themselves back, and there's a degree to which perhaps they're holding you back as well. Right? And, I'll give you a couple examples of what I mean. Ages and ages and ages ago, what I wanted to do was direct a movie, right? I had a basic idea for what the movie was going to be and a story that was going to be, I think, pretty much filmable on, on a low, independent film type of budget. I mean, we weren't going to be making Star Wars. That's for damn sure. You know? Now, what were we... we what were we going to be making? Well, I'm going to keep that to myself. But suffice it to say, you know, the, the cause of all of that was... Now I'm forgetting the name of the film festival. But basically, Houston has this film festival. I, I, it's like Spirit Fest or something like that. I, I forget the name of it. But the basic idea is that filmmakers in the Houston area they compete in this film festival they all create something and the the films that are judged the b- to be the best those are the ones that get actual theatrical screenings and who knows what opportunities might come out of something like that and i thought well you know what it might be kind of fun to do that you know not because i've always dreamed of becoming a a, a director or, or anything like that or a screenwriter or or what have you But just, you know, the idea of taking on a new challenge in life just because it's there to be taken, you know? And if something good comes out of that, well, then, you know, that's great. But it doesn't doesn't have to have some kind of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know? It's okay in life sometimes to just do something because it's there to be done, you know? and that was pretty much the philosophy with which I decided, you know what, we need to do this. This friend of mine, I'll just call him Steve. That was kind of the attitude that I had. You know, I said, you know what, Steve, we can do this. We can make this movie. There's no friggin' way it can cost all that much, especially the way that I want to shoot it. There's just no way that it's going to cost all that much money to do. We can make it look like a million bucks, and guys, I have to tell you, I saw the winner uh the winning movie of that movie festival, and I'm sitting here I'm watching this stuff and i i just i'm I'm trying to be charitable when I say, man, this thing's just a piece of shit, you know <clears throat> it uh it was just it wasn't entertaining, you know it wasn't. It was trying to be entertaining and it wasn't funny, but it was trying to be funny. You know, it was trying to do all of these things that are either beyond the director that was making the movie. It was beyond the cast that he chose. And I thought, if this is the best that this festival has to offer, there's no way I can make a movie that's worse than this, you know, the winning movie. There's no way that my movie is going to be worse than this. And so basically sat down with Steve and basically hashed out an idea. I said, look, I can write or mostly write the script. I can direct it. I can, you know, find probably local actors at like community colleges and stuff like that. People who would maybe get a kick out of being in a movie, you know, and all of this stuff I'm prepared to do. But, you know, there are logistics that go into making a film that I... It's just too much for me to do everything. So I need you to kind of be like a producer and you do some, you know, some things like you find places that where, you know, where we can, uh, you know, where we can shoot this movie and all of this stuff. And I, you know, even threw out a few ideas on how to do it and nothing, nothing happened. He didn't make any of the phone calls I asked him to. He didn't do any of the stuff that I, that I set up. He didn't. It's like he just wasn't trying, right? And if this was the only time that something like this had happened, I wouldn't have minded so much. But then, you know, when he just said, oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't do that. When he said that to me, I started thinking back to a few years before even this incident, where I said, hey, dude, we need to make our own comic book you know, and we can do it, we can release comics online, we can do it, it can't cost all that much, you know, to to get a web server and do all of these other things, we can do this, we can make our own comic book, you know, I have fucking no idea what it's going to be about, but, you know, who cares, sometimes you don't, sometimes in life it's better to just dive in feet first, you don't have a plan, you don't know what you're doing, you just know that you want to do this, and just let the chips fall where they may, you know? Maybe it'll be a good comic book. Maybe it's going to suck out loud. Maybe ten years from now, people are going to look back at this and call it a cautionary tale of the things that can go wrong if you try to produce your own comic book. Fucking who cares? You know, at least we tried. And so, basically, I came up with an idea for a comic book, and I passed it over to him. And he's got very strong art skills. And so I said, tell you what, why don't you just design a couple of characters based on the stuff that I'm giving you here. If you don't think this stuff is any good, just draw something that you do think would be good, and then, you know, we can just use that. Week goes by, fuck all happens. And then a couple of years after I had the idea for the movie, several years after, actually, I had the idea for the movie... After the comic book didn't work out, after the movie didn't work out, I started kicking around the idea of doing my own podcast. And at this point, I'd kind of decided, you know, this is going to be my podcast. This is not going to be our podcast. Because, I mean, this guy, yes, he's a friend. Don't get me wrong, but he just really isn't very dependable, you know? And so I said, well, tell you what, this is going to be my podcast, but you know, if you want, you can come up with a, uh, with a logo for me. And, uh, you know, I, I, that would really do me a lot of good. I mean, I can do stuff in Photoshop a little bit, but you know, I'm not a great Photoshop talent or anything. I mean, even if I could come up with something in Photoshop, it may not look all that good, whereas something that Steve comes up with in Photoshop is probably going to look pretty good. He said he'd do it. And that was the last conversation that he and I ever had about it. Never asked him about it again. He said he'd have something for me by the end of that week. Nothing came, and I never asked him about it again. And what I came... as, And it really should have occurred to me a lot sooner. But what I came to understand is that Steve is the ultimate... Along for the ride guy, you know, as long as you're doing all the work, he doesn't mind being there to help you or assist or manage or something, you know, but in terms of doing something himself, you know, where he has to, you know, contribute something tangible, he's going to have real responsibilities, you know, there are real things that he's going to be expected to do, to produce, to accomplish, etc. no, you know that's not going to happen. And on, so like I say, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, it is kind of sad and a little depressing actually that, that it's come to this, you know, but on the other hand, you know, I, I look back on this sort of long history of You know, wanting to do something other than just go to work every day, come home, drink a beer, go to sleep, you know, you know, of wanting to do something fun, you know, let's let's make a movie or let's make a comic book or, you know, or a podcast, fucking whatever, you know, do something other than just sit around punching a clock all day and working and working yourself into an early grave, you know, something fun, you know. Even if it fails, who cares? We still had fun doing it, and isn't that what matters? So, and I don't know why, but there's a big picture to all of that. It just seems to elude Steve. And, you know, this may be kind of an offensive thing to say out loud. That doesn't make it wrong. It just means that some people are going to get a little bit pissy about it. But in life, what I find is that there are a few different types of people. And there are people who achieve, or at least take risks. They have an idea, and maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's a bad idea, but they go out there and market their, their idea and maybe they do a good job of executing it, or maybe they do a bad job of executing it, but damn it, they executed it, you know? And then there's this other type, the beta male. And the beta male basically is there to keep society running, you know? These are the guys that we need to show up on time for work every day, pay their fucking taxes and everything, so that, And again, I know this is going to piss some people off, but, you know, you don't like it. I guess just don't listen to what I'm about to say. Guys like that exist so that the risk takers and achievers in society can achieve and take risks in society, you know. But it's kind of morally wrong for you to expect somebody who's a consummate beta male, to do something other than be a consummate beta male. Does that make sense? I mean, if what you want is, I guess just to use an analogy, if what you want is a car that uh, that can, or some kind of vehicle that's got four-wheel drive, you really don't have a right to go out and buy a Camaro and bitch and complain about the fact that it doesn't have four-wheel drive, you know? And if you ask a beta male to do something that requires any kind of effort that, I don't know, he doesn't get to sit on his ass and watch TV all night, well, you kind of deserve whatever you get. And so for somebody like that to, I don't know, I guess, drop me out of his life. Is that really a bad thing? Objectively, I kind of have to say no, even if I've got a lot of personal feelings on the matter that say... that I miss my friend. (sighs) Well, anyway. Now, a lot of you have noticed, and even commented on the slightly more, I don't know, confessional type of tone that I've had lately. And my, my reasoning for all of this is to say that the future of Trenis Magnus Punch's reality, whatever future it has, it no longer depends upon me keeping all of this stuff bottled up. So, that's that. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Air your attention, please! This kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by earth's yellow sun dr doom wears body to conceal his own angled form worst episode ever why who shot first yeah. who gives a shit Earth! it's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and right now I'm working my way through a kind of brief miniseries concerning the Marvel Comics event, Civil War. And it's a pretty simple concept, really. This is just going to be a, just a really quick a three-episode sort of mini-series before I move on to something else. And... I guess the the catalyst for this obviously is going to be the fact that the Civil War movie is coming out soon. It's Captain America, the third Captain America film, Civil War, and I thought this is going to be kind of a neat little opportunity to talk about some of the the Civil War stuff that I like the most. And so, in the first part of this of this uh, of this mini series, I spent some time with. Michael Bailey, we we talked about the New Avengers Illuminati one-shot special that kind of, I guess, set the the context for Civil War. Then we talked about the main Civil War limited series, and then, of course, it just went on from there. And so in this episode, I wanted to just kind of put the brakes on, at least a little bit, and talk about some X-Men comics that relate to Civil War, specifically at least in this segment, Civil War X-Men. This is a four-issue uh, limited series, ties in with Civil War, and it does something that I think kind of needed to be done, in that it it gave the X-Men's position on the events of Civil War. Now, that was, I guess somewhat touched upon back in the Illuminati special, but it gets a little bit more attention here. And so before we get into it, though, I just want to say that when it comes to X-Men comics, guys, I'm not going to bullshit you. I am not an expert. I'm really not an expert on any comics, but I've got a tremendous depth of familiarity with Superman comics. And a lot of Batman comics, and honestly, really a lot of DC comics in general. But when it comes to Marvel, I don't pretend any kind of expertise or anything like that. And especially X-Men. I mean, you know, X-Men comics were something that I studiously avoided through, I would say, a, a considerable portion of, of the 90s. And, I don't know, It's just it's a prejudice that I've always had, put it that way. And so... That was just something I wanted to I wanted to get clear on just in advance. So anyway, this is as I say, this is a Civil War X Men, just a kind of neat little four issue miniseries. And so the credits for it are as follows: writer is David Hine, penciler is Yannick Paquette, inker is Sergei. Or sorry, I guess Sergey. I was about to say Sergio, but no, it's actually. The inker is uh, Sergey Lapointe. It's an interesting name. Colorist is Stéphane uh, Peru. Letterer is VCs Russ Wooten. Associate editor is Sean Ryan. Other, uh, as, or, sorry, assistant editor is Sean Ryan. Associate editor is Nick Lowe. Editor is Mike Martz. Editor in chief is Joe Casada, and publisher is Dan Buckley. And as it goes for the I guess for the synopsis of Civil War X-Men prior to the publication of Civil War X-Men the events of House of M reduced the mutant population down to only 198 known mutants and the US government has turned the Xavier Institute into a relocation camp patrolled by Sentinel Squad ONE or 1 but I think you're actually supposed to say it ONE In Civil War No. 3, the X Men declare official neutrality in the superhero Civil War. In X Men Civil War No. 1, X Force members Domino, Shatterstar, and Caliban break the 198 out of the Xavier Institute. Cyclops declines to assist the ONE, but Bishop wants mutants to police their own. Bishop is thus given permission by the government to take Sabra and Micromax to find the escapees. The surviving X Men decide to or sorry, the surviving original X-Men, decide to sneak off the grounds to find the escapees before Bishop can arrest them. In issue number two, General Laser, head of the O.N.E., discovers Johnny D.'s power to control anyone whose DNA he can digest. Cyclops contacts Captain America, who reveals the Nevada bunker that that Domino has taken the escaped mutants to. Bishop learns that the President of the United States is considering full amnesty for the 198 and just as Cyclops' team is about to enter the bunker, Bishop and several Sentinels arrive and tell everyone to await the President's decision. Just then, Laser has Johnny D force Cyclops into releasing the full power of his optic blast onto Bishop, but Bishop redirects the energy up towards the sky. In issue number three, Val Cooper stumbles onto Laser and Johnny D's machinations, and then she becomes head of the O.N.E. and calls a ceasefire. However, Laser has already initiated a self-destruct sequence inside the bunker in which the 198 are hiding. In issue number four, the X-Men team up with Bishop, Iron Man, and Miss Marvel to save the 198 from the exploding bunker. Johnny D kills Laser while Val Cooper is interrogating him, and Johnny D is then locked away in prison. The 198 walk away intact and separate while Bishop leaves the X-Men. He's later seen talking to Val, who tells him the O.N.E. were given way too much discretionary power at the expense of mutant civil rights, and that the president has appointed an oversight committee in order to make changes. The first being that the Xavier Institute is going to become a community for mutants, with residency being voluntary and open to all who wish to reside there, and that the O.N.E. would no longer be authorized to restrict their comings and goings. The second change is that the Sentinels are going to remain on the grounds, but for protection only, and that mutants are going to be free to come and go as they please. Val then offers Bishop a job with the O.N.E., which he accepts. The end. So, what did I think? Well, I guess as far as art's concerned, I'm not exactly the world's biggest fan of Yannick Paquette in general. The way I've always looked at it is... He's just kind of there. There wasn't really anything specific about his art that that really stood out to me one way or the other. But that having been said, I really enjoyed his work in the series. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it as you know I get through uh, get through these comics and go through them sort of page by page. But just from the outset, I wish it to be understood that I've got a, a pretty favorable view of the art here. There's it has this sort of indefinable something to it. I don't know. But like I say, I'll get more into that later on. On page one, basically what we have here is... page one of the first issue, I should say. What we have here is really a lot of exposition to... really to to apprise either new readers or remind old readers what exactly the stakes that the mutants are, are, are playing for right now. So... That's kind of useful. I mean, some people look down their nose at it and, and they tend to say that people are going to absorb the story so you don't need to overload them with information. But I don't know. I mean, the fact is, it seems like the status quo with the X-Men changes all the time. And it's always helpful to have just these little reminders of what it is that's going on because then that allows these sort of X-Men numbnuts like me entree into the story so certainly there's there's that the other thing though is i guess based on nothing i'd assumed that the x-men and i guess speaking of the status quo i'd always sort of assumed that the x-men had a fairly stable status quo but really the the entire premise of this story is that the x-men are pretty much living under occupation they've got sentinels that are ready, willing, and able to blast them into the next life if they so much as poke a toe out of line. And needless to say, that's no status quo of the X-Men that I've ever been familiar with. But if you're uh, you're at all aware of what's gone on with House of M and all that stuff, yeah, this seems like the kind of reactionary thing I could see being imposed upon the X-Men. And not even really because of anything that they specifically have done, but more because they're mutants. So, I don't know. That was that was a, I guess, a little bit of a revelation for me. But it, it does add a lot of credibility to the neutrality that the X-Men are trying to have. That they don't want to get involved in whatever's happening with the Superhuman Reg- uh, Registration Act. I mean, number one, they've got their own shit to deal with and it, it, just in terms of the sentinel occupation that they're dealing with but I think over and above all of that stuff what I've always interpreted based I guess really on nothing but what I've always interpreted is that the X-Men were neutral during Civil War to kind of give the rest of the, the super powered Marvel community a little bit of an idea of what they've had to live with their whole lives you know and so it's it's partly just survival on their part but i think on uh, um, they wanted to know they wanted everyone to know what it feels like when the shoes on the other foot you know and i've i've never really been able to shake i guess that interpretation you know so anyway all around this is just really good really entertaining stuff and my point is all of this It seems logical to me. I I understand and can even really sympathize with the, the agenda here that they're trying to bring across. So that part's okay. But right around the time that the 198 make their escape, we get a little bit of a philosophical conflict between Bishop and, well, Cyclops, really. I mean, Cyclops basically doesn't want to have... He doesn't want to help what he views as his uh, as enemies with tracking down people that, f- from a moral standpoint, they have the right to come and go as they see fit. And they shouldn't live at somebody else's leave, you know? And I think that's very much where Cyclops is coming from. Bishop, he's taking a little bit more of a pragmatic view. see because I, I, I don't want to be too patronizing about it and say that what he's looking for is enfranchisement in the in the system and to show that hey mutants can be trusted, but if if that's not the his reasons for doing what he's doing his actions are otherwise kind of hard to justify and so this is one of the things about the x men that it took me a while a long while actually to understand that you know you have these people that they all have, in their own way, special abilities, but they are in no way necessarily on the same page with one another. And and I don't mean this just from the standpoint of Professor X believing what he believes, and then Magneto believing what he believes, and then the conflict between Professor X and Magneto springing from those philosophical differences. I mean, yes, that is arguably the franchise of or the historic franchise of of the X-Men but i guess that sort of philosophical conflict it goes far beyond just those two characters even characters that believe that you know what integration is the way to go rather than supremacy even they can't necessarily agree on tactics so, so often in comics, you read, you read these conflicts that exist between characters because the narrative requires that those conflicts exist. And here, there's nothing really forced about it. Bishop, of all people, has seen what can happen in, I guess, a war. Not maybe not a war, but I guess persecution of society, if, if the full weight of society is ever brought down on mutants, Bishop knows they're going to lose. They have no chance of, of pro- well, probably no chance of surviving, but certainly they have no chance of winning. That much is for damn sure. So of all, uh, of all characters, it makes the most sense that Bishop is going to try to find a way to befriend the system. Does that make sense? I don't mean Kowtow bend over and take it, but I mean integrate himself and his mutant people into the system so that the system cannot be used against them. Of all characters, it it is totally logical that Bishop is going to feel that way, and of all characters, it makes them it makes sense to me that. Cyclops' attitude is going to be, you know what, fuck everybody else. It's a good thing that they're experiencing what we've had to deal with all along. So, again, I'm not trying to beat this thing to death. I'm just saying that it, it's, it's not like this is a massive conflict, really. It's just it's a difference of opinion. But it's a difference of opinion that I can totally sympathize with. And as with so much of the X-Men, it's not just that, e- that these two characters each have a point of view. They have a very sympathetic point of view. Bishop just wants to live. What's wrong with that? There's a tiny little bit of vindictiveness and Cyclops' standpoint of, hey, fuck those guys. They didn't stand by us. They are not standing by us, even now. Why should we help e- any of them now? And I don't know, I mean when I think about it, that can definitely be my attitude about certain things, you know, fuck him because of this, 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 and this. Sometimes you don't always necessarily have the kind of patience and compassion for others, I guess. I mean, well, I don't want to get too specific, but basically I ended up going on a rant about some stuff on Facebook this one time. And, and I took a kind of hard line about something and believe me, I got feedback on this, but I took a little bit of a hard line about something, and I said words to the effect of, you know, people ask, hey, Magnus, where is your sympathy? Well, you know, I guess I must have left it in the dictionary. It's somewhere between shit and syphilis. Why don't you go looking for it? I'm I, Go look it up. I bet you'll find it. And I can totally understand where Cyclops is coming from here. Hey, fuck them. So, anyway, all around, this is this is just really well done, you know, and, and I guess, uh, like, from the standpoint of just it being a fun little action scene, the breakout of the 198, it's just enjoyable to watch, and it's, it's, and the other thing is, you know, it's paced really well, and you get, you get a couple of glory shots, you know, you've got Angel swooping around, Cyclops firing off his eye beams as he is wont to do, Beast is running around kicking everybody's ass, and, Basically, what you've got is like i say it's this is basically i guess the manifestation of different conflicts, and like I say it just it makes sense to me is what I'm saying, and there's even a there there's this moment and of course, they don't number the friggin pages in this thing, but there's a moment where. I guess that I keep wanting to call this a conflict. It's not really a conflict. It's it's again, it's a difference of opinion. But Bishop says this is why mutants must police themselves. Otherwise, there's chaos. And you know what follows chaos? And he points to the scar on his head, the the tattoo labeled M. He he points to that and he says, "This, where I come from." children were branded as mutants. So don't preach to me, Summers. You have no idea what real oppression is. And Scott fires back. He starts to say, I know. And then he gets cut off. Bishop just covers his mouth and says, don't. Then he storms off. And like I say, it's completely logical, you know, where Bishop is coming from on all of this. And I just, it's it, it's a it's a neat it's a neat little way to kind of punctuate that action scene, and also it's just a fun little escape sequence. And yes, the dialogue is totally on point here. So I just I really dig this. This is a, it's a really fun and just interesting, thought provoking first issue. I enjoy it. It's it's and and you know what? Like I say, I am not a huge X Men expert by any means, but Nevertheless, it is kind of nice to see the original X-Men teaming up and then going out on an adventure together. Here you've got Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, and Angel. And I guess also there's... Yeah, this is Emma Frost. I thought she was going to tag along and she wasn't one of the originals, obviously, but fuck it, whatever, she's here. You've got, basically, though, all of the surviving original members of the X-Men going out on this this big adventure, and, like I say, I don't necessarily have the same, the, the same, I guess, emotional um, connection with that that a lot of other, X, like, real X-Men fans do, but it's still, nevertheless, fun to see just from, I guess, a from an outsider standpoint. I mean, I don't feel like you need to be, uh, X-Men expert par excellence in order to, to enjoy that, you know? So anyway, uh, getting into issue two, Emma Frost gets kidnapped, uh, by, well, not kidnapped, ki- uh, captured by one of the Sentinels and basically, uh, carted off and pretty much just taken into custody so that she can be interrogated and debriefed by the O.N.E. as to where exactly the other X-Men are are headed. <clears throat> and this is one of those sort of mechanical things that needs to happen in the story in order for the O.N.E. to be put in conflict with the members, the original members of the X-Men, and then so they can have it out outside of the base. You need a scene where everybody finds out where everybody else is going. So... It's nevertheless a lot of fun to, it's just a fun way to, to bring it across, I guess is what I'm saying. So uh, moving, moving along through the uh, second issue, the, this is again a, just a kind of neat little reminder of just how good the original X-Men have become by now, that they can take on a Sentinel all by themselves. And it's not necessarily end of the world for them. I mean, yeah, this is a fight. It's a fight they've got to take seriously. But at the end of the day, they know how to win this fight. And honestly, victory in this case doesn't necessarily come from destroying the Sentinel. It comes from escaping in one piece. And that's what ultimately counts. And I don't know, it's it's a nice little you know, a couple of pages, uh, action sequence, a nice little diversion, shall we say. One of the other things, though, that, that I kind of like about this is Johnny D is just... See, I, I, he's definitely a victim in all of this. There's, there's really no two ways about that, but... This is just a really fucking creepy power that he's got. First off, he's just got a creepy look to him, you know? That those tentacles and shit that are coming out of his chest, it's just fucking weird looking, right? And... He even makes a special point of saying that technically he's not the mutant. He's actually a combination of two separate personalities. So, technically he's not the mutant. That shit in his chest is the real mutant. But anyway, this is just... Weird, creepy, fucked up. And I think that in general, this is just a just a creepy power to have. Because when you think about it, I guess like from a personal standpoint... Like the ability to fly. That's got... I mean, I, I guess there are ways that you could abuse that superpower. But it's... It's not, I guess what I'm saying is this is not a pervert's superpower, you know? Like, the that's the superpower that I would always want to have, is the ability to fly. But I was talking to somebody one time, and he said that the ability that he'd want is mind control. Which, if you ask me, that's just a fucking skeezy superpower to want to have. I mean, it's one thing to have it, just fucking because. But to actually want to have that power to control other people's minds... I've always thought that's just a really lurk type of superpower to want to have, you know? I mean, what kind of a creep wants to be able to control other people's minds, you know? I mean, yeah, it would be great for getting out of speeding tickets, but let's face it, that's probably not what a certain type of person, like a creep, would probably use it for, you know? So, I don't know. This this whole thing is just a little bit, a little bit twisted, so... Anyway, um, moving right along with the story, though, this is, uh, it's basically the moment where the X-Men finally arrive at, at the military base and uh, try to get access. Out comes this huge, I almost want to say ambush a- a- in a weird kind of way, because you've got all of these Sentinels and shit that are running around. You've got Bishop, uh, other members of the O.N.E., and it looks like that we're about to get into sort of a, a battle royale here. And, you know, the fact is, this is the kind of thing where cooler heads may very well have prevailed. Except that uh, Johnny D... Johnny D basically ends up screwing it up for... for ev- well, actually, he, he does, he's, it's not like he's, at, he, he's being coerced here. It's not like he's doing this of his own free will. But nevertheless, that is what's happening. He's uh, basically taken possession, so to speak, of Cyclops, who's then blasting the shit out of Bishop, and that's where the second issue ends. And when you think about it, I mean, this is... He is ridiculously powerful, you know, um, Cyclops is. He can fire off some serious juice. And... I mean, I, I'd i always known that, that Bishop... He could take a lot of punishment, but for him to take the full intensity of, of Cyclops' eye blasts, I mean, that's pretty fucking powerful. So, anyhow. From there, this is where we, we start getting into the big action fest of, of this issue. And one of the other... Just to kind of move on, um, inside the base... Uh, Inside the base, you've got Domino. She gets a gun pulled on her. uh, by It's not Johnny D directly. It's actually by somebody else. But Johnny D has taken possession of one of the other uh, members of the 198 and points it at Domino. And this is where we start getting into one of what I think is actually the coolest superpowers that anybody has in this entire miniseries. Basically, Domino has the ability to influence probability. And I'm just going to read the shit out of Wikipedia since that's probably the better way of phrasing it. It says, Domino's a mutant with the ability to subconsciously and psionically initiate random telekinetic acts that affect probability in her favor by making improbable but not impossible things occur within her line of sight, thus causing her to have a type of good luck and her opponents to have a type of bad luck. This probability field phenomenon can be anything from an an enemy's equipment failing, uh, or it could be hitting just the right switch with a stray shot to shut down an overloading nuclear reactor. The full extent of her powers is still unknown. This subconsciously controlled talent is Triggered when she's in a stressful situation, such as fighting or escaping. This effect constantly emanates from her body at all times and is completely subconscious. However, it's also largely participatory. In order for the luck to take effect, Domino herself must engage in an action whose chance she can affect. For example, if debris is falling from the sky and is about to hit her in the head, she'd still be hurt if she stood still. However, if she tries to avoid it, she would move perfectly to avoid each and every piece that's about to hit her. In addition, if Domino were to stand before a hail of bullets, she would, she would end up as a bullet-riddled corpse. Instead, she has to take action, attempting to avoid the gunfire, and would su- miraculously, quote-unquote, bob and weave just perfectly to avoid every single shot. As a byproduct of her abilities, Domino's cerebral cortex emits a current of bioelectric pulses down her spine to instinctively guide her movements during such situations, which has the added effect of augmenting her natural reflexes and reactions to superhuman levels. During the 198 rebellion at the Xavier Institute, Domino was able to consciously utilize her abilities in order to affect, the probability fields of storm clouds above a group of O.N.E. sentinels, calling down lightning to strike them. Domino is also a superb markswoman with various firearms, highly skilled athlete, excellent swimmer, and adept in use of explosives. She has extensive training in various armed combat techniques and the martial arts, with Olympic gold-level athletic and acrobatic ability. She She also seems to be fluent in multiple languages. Domino wears body armor of unknown composition and carries conventional firearms. She has also used a staff that fires unspecified ammunition, which can be used for balance when jumping and is equipped with sensors. During her time as an ex-corporation operative, Domino wore contact lenses designed by Forge, capable of night vision, or with a triple blink, firing high-intensity laser beams. So, all of this is a long way of saying that when johnny d possessing uh one of the other members of the 198 that is to say outlaw she or he johnny points the points the revolver at at domino who says the thing about a revolver is that sooner or later it misfires if you take care of it that may only happen one time in a thousand but that's good enough odds for me. And then sure enough, it misfires. So that's all that needs uh, that needs to be done for the other mutants to get the drop on Johnny D, who then, who, who at that moment, gives up Outlaw and then possesses one of the other mutants. And it just sort of goes on from there. But that's actually... I gotta tell you, this is just a neat little moment, and it's actually one of my favorite moments in this entire miniseries, where Domino... Because when you think about it, I guess as far as mutant superpowers go, this is one of the most original that's out there. Because, I mean, how many mutants out there have healing factors, or, or they shoot shit out of their eyes or something like that? But uh, uh, supposedly more mundane is probability. And if you think about that, if you can affect probability, you're bending the entire fucking universe to your will. That is power. So anyway, this is just one of the cooler superpowers that anybody has. So I just really dig it. So anyway, from there, the battle continues, then a ceasefire gets called. And then it comes out that the self-destruct mechanism inside of the inside of the uh, bunker it's it's been triggered and shit is about to get real so that pretty much leads into the fourth and final issue where the basically at this point everybody is is trying to break in but there's this is a bunker. It was designed to stand up to this kind of punishment. Even the Sentinels and Cyclops blasting on one side and then the members of the 198 blasting at the other side, that's not going to cut it. So the question becomes, you know, how then do they get inside? And as all of that's going on, Valerie Valerie starts interrogating laser. And this is, and I'm using kind of, I'm using interrogating there. I'm using that sort of in quotation marks because you would think, you know, when just the minute you hear the word interrogate, you think ask questions and you would probably assume that most interrogations don't require a crowbar, but Valerie, she interrogates people using a crowbar. She bashes Lasers' kneecaps in. And it hurts just... Oh, God. I mean, she's just whacking the fuck out of him. You can even see that he's bleeding. Like, through... Like, uh, at his knees. Through his little coat or robe or whatever the hell that is. And... Good Lord. I mean, the... The, the pain that he's got to be in, you know? So, anyway, and as it happens, he ends up getting put out of his misery by Johnny D, so whatever. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, I guess, so. Right around then, uh, members of the Avengers, led by Iron Man, show up. It's Iron Man and Ms. Marvel. And they blast their way into the bunker, and they rescue everyone, and everybody lives happily ever after. So, I don't know, this is just a fun little story, and this is not exactly, you know, the franchise that, uh, of Civil War, I mean, this is not what Civil War is all about, but at the same time, this is just, it, it, it is a reminder to us that Civil War, as much as it's a story, it's also a concept. And concepts have a lot of room for creators to kind of play with the ideas that that are being kicked around here and tell some really interesting stories. And this isn't... I mean, at best, this is tangential to what's going on in Civil War as a story, but it's still a ton of fun, and I really enjoy it, so all around lots of fun and i highly recommend this to everybody. So that is pretty much that. Now I think that's yeah this this segment's actually going long as it is. So tell you what. I'm going to go ahead and take a break and I'm going to be right back so I can talk about a, about some Wolverine comics. So so I'll be right back after these messages. front has come into being for the sole purpose of liberating known kind everywhere. For too long have these wonderful people suffered under the cruel mistreatment of humans. Man has looked down on these poor people for too long only because they are lacking in height. This discrimination must stop, and it's up to each and every one of us to see that it does. No longer shall these once proud people be forced to remain outdoors and fight the elements while their human owners enjoy the comforts of climate control and central heating and air. No longer must gnomes suffer the extreme heat of summer, nor the severe and biting cold of winter. Never again shall gnome kind suffer the indignity of being bombarded with bird feces. Never again. Should a gnome be the victim of a careless pizza delivery driver? For there's no greater fear among the gnomes than that of being crushed by an automobile. With cruelty and carelessness, humans place the gnomes in precarious and dangerous positions, and I say to you, this must stop now. Let this serve as a call to arms to all those who would sympathize with the plight of the garden gnomes. I put it to each and every one of you to take up the fight wherever you see it. This cruelty must stop. The Garden Gnome Liberation Front can be found on Facebook simply by searching for Garden Gnome Liberation Front. Take action. The revolution draws near. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a couple of Wolverine comics here that I want to work through. Partly it's because they really are relevant to what's going on in Civil War as a storyline, and partly it's because I just feel like reading some more X-Men comics, so that's really the main agenda that's going on here. So, basically, Following This is Wolverine, by the way. Uh, Wolverine, Volume 2, depending on how you look at it, or Volume 3, again, depending on how you look at it. Wolverine, number 42 through 48. The storyline's entitled Vendetta. And the high concept behind this storyline is that Logan tracks down the culprit, shall we say. And when you think about it when you know when you read Civil War one of the things that ends up happening pretty quickly is Nitro basically goes AWOL you know after the first issue it's it's like nobody's even talking about it and I'm gonna have a little bit more to say about that in just a little while I'll come back to that but for right now this is Wolverine uh, number 42 writer is Mark Guggenheim Pinsler is Umberto Ramos. Inker is Carlos Sueves. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that. Uh, Colorist is Edgar Delgado. -er -er Letterer is Randy Gentile. Editor is Axel Alonso. Editor-in-chief is no less than Joe Quesada himself. So, Wolverine number 42. Basically, It kicks off with Logan beating the shit out of the Crusader and some of his minions after which the plane on which they're fighting crashes after which Logan comes back to life as it were borrows some clothes from a first responder goes to a bar whereupon he hears about goings-on in Stamford Connecticut decides he needs to get the hell out of Dodge he goes to Stamford and assists in the cleanup, but as he's doing so, he and other mutants are are being, I guess, surveilled by a sentinel. Elsewhere, a... Basically, this just looks like your ordinary, typical suburban house and your ordinary, typical suburban family living there. The blonde woman gets a call letting her know that she's been activated. She calls out to what I assume to be her husband, who swims to the surface of the swimming pool, and says, hey, we need to get the hell out of there. Meanwhile, and elsewhere, at a Japanese restaurant, Logan, Logan uh, gets kicked out because of how uncomfortable the patrons uh, feel by the presence of superhumans, which, even though Logan... I guess is technically superhuman, he's a mutant, but that doesn't exactly help his cause all that much. So he's not only asked to leave, he's asked to leave through the back door. Whereupon he gets set upon by some angry young hooligans who decide they want a piece of any superhuman. Logan, using his claws, manages to talk, talk them out of attacking him, and they make a run for it. Elsewhere, at Avengers Headquarters, a lot of the cracks and philosophical differences start showing in the superhero community with different people expressing different points of view vis-a-vis the Superhuman Registration Act. And Logan is pretty solidly anti-registration. Inasmuch as the world isn't exactly Disneyland, there are people out there who are shall we say, just not nice people. And if they were to somehow obtain the entire superhero community's secret identity, the trouble that might ensue from that, well, nobody's really qualified to say what would happen. Now, are they? So, Wolverine decides he needs to move away from the group, get some air, and basically just get some time alone, wherein he runs into Tony Stark, who has a pretty good idea of what Logan is thinking and tries to talk him out of going after Nitro by himself. He won't explain why, other than Nitro is is being dealt with, but Stark isn't getting into specifics beyond that. Afterward, Luke Cage shows up and... Basically tries to, tries to reason with Logan. And Logan says, look, motherfucker, there are sentinels standing outside of my house. And they're there every single day. And Luke, Luke Cage's point is, hey, man, they're there to protect you. Mutants are an endangered species at this point because this is all obviously post House of M. Mutants are an endangered species. They're there for your protection. And at that moment, Logan, Logan hits Luke where it hurts. Basically, Logan says, well, how would you feel if there was a burning cross outside of your house? Luke doesn't really like that comparison, but Wolverine's point is, look, that's what sentinels are to mutants. They are burning crosses outside our house and that's as you might imagine that is pretty much the end of the conversation next day Wolverine's having it out with with uh, Scott and Emma and they're ba- and again they both know what what Wolverine wants to do in terms of tracking down Nitro they're both trying to talk him out of it but Logan's not exactly famous for following orders so Logan goes back to ground zero catches Nitro's scent Actually, he's already gotten Nitro's scent, but he finds Nitro's scent in the rubble and then uses that to to follow Nitro and track him down, which just about leads us to, this is Wolverine number 43, where Logan's clearing out a bar. He's tracked down the owner of the pickup truck in which Nitro uh, hitched a ride out of town. And finally finds the owner of the truck and shall we say talks manages to get out of him where the where it is that he's dropped off Nitro. Where is Nitro hiding? And it ter- turns out to be Big Sur, California. And this is Stockton, California, which is not all that far away. So, Logan's about to hop on his mo- his uh, motorcycle and track down Nitro, and put a stop to this once and for all, wherein he ends up bumping into Tony Stark in full Iron Man gear, who again tries to talk Logan out of tracking down Nitro, and in the process, Wolverine ends up giving away where exactly Nitro is hiding, which is a big log cabin in Big Sur, California, which is all Stark really needs he's already got a group of shield agents on the job, and they're already tracking nitro, so Wolverine just basically gave him the last pieces of the puzzle that uh that they need to to find nitro so Wolverine isn't going to let him go uh go it alone though he joins in on their i don't know standoff with nitro and the confrontation just about goes the way you'd expect. Nitro realizes that he's, under, that he's under siege, so he explodes and then makes his getaway. Meanwhile, as all this stuff is going on, uh, the suburban couple, they find a surfer, who has basically beaten the shit out of a bunch of other surfers because of surfers' protocol that I don't even feel like getting into here. They realize they've found their man, and they go on on a, a mission of their own. After the explosion, Nitro makes a call to somebody in Washington, D.C. You get the impression that this person is his handler, who says, you know what, Nitro... Knowing you is risky fucking business, so as of this moment, you're on your own. Goodbye. Elsewhere, the suburban couple and the black surfer find the same truck driver that Wolverine found earlier in the issue, who gives them the same intel that uh, he gave to Wolverine, after which the black surfer kills him, and then, after the explosion, elsewhere in Big Sur, Nitro walks over to his car to make his escape, wherein he's attacked by Wolverine, who has survived the explosion. Which just about leads us into Wolverine number 44. Wolverine is beating the holy dog shit out of of Nitro for what's happened, and keep in mind, Wolverine could kill Nitro anytime he feels like it, but right now he's basically just cutting him to ribbons, beating the shit out of him, and basically doing what he can to prolong the fight rather than end Nitro's existence. Nitro says that, look, I've never had this level of power before. Hasn't it ever struck you as a little bit unusual that my explosions are usually a lot smaller than this, but on this one occasion, I was able to take out a few city blocks... Didn't you once wonder how that was possible since I've never been able to do that before? Which is enough to get Wolverine to stop. So Nitro fishes out of his pocket a couple of pills. These are, th- these is, uh, these are mutant growth hormone pills and basically says if you're just a regular person, these pills will give you superpowers. If you already have powers, these pills are going to enhance your powers. It's mutant growth hormone. The effects are temporary, but they're potent while the while the drugs are in effect. So Wolverine asks the $64,000 question, who do you work for? Who's responsible for all of this? Nitro is about to answer, where but that would be a little bit too convenient for the plot. So the black surfer dude, whose name we find out is Janus, chooses that moment to attack a completely naked Wolverine, and then they fight it out in the forest, wherein the suburban couple, they come upon the scene and try to subdue Nitro themselves. Shit is getting incredibly out of control here. Meanwhile, elsewhere, unnamed people in an unnamed office place at an unnamed location are basically shitting bricks that their number may be up. Their role, whatever it may be in the Stamford incident may be about to become public, but the leader guy basically tells the junior employee, hey, look, don't worry about it. Basically, just dump your cell phone, get a new cell phone number, everything should be okay. Back in Big Sur, the fight continues, and Wolverine basically sticks Janus with his claws. Out of nowhere, Nitro sneaks up behind Wolverine and tries to Uh, hold him hostage so that he can make his escape, but that's not exactly the best idea he ever has. Wolverine escapes from Nitro's clutches and then asks the obvious question, just who the fuck are you people? Where Janice puts on his breathing mask and his skin tone changes from black to blue with sort of white highlights. He's Atlantean. So Wolverine asks, who the hell sent you Atlanteans... To deal with Nitro. Prince Namor steps out of nowhere and says, motherfucker, isn't it obvious? Which just about leads us to Wolverine number 45. Wolverine and Prince Namor are fighting it out between each other. Wolverine sticks Namor with his claws and basically tries to take care of Nitro himself, but namor comes up behind wolverine smacks him upside the head which is enough to knock wolverine out for a while wolverine calls tony stark and then talks him into letting him borrow his uh, a set of his iron man armor to go underwater and pay a visit to new pangea prince namor doesn't exactly realize at first that he's talking to wolverine rather than tony stark and he says that dude your very presence here is an act of war get out of here while i'll still let you Wolverine basically says, nope, can't do that, pops his claws, and then Namor realizes what he's really up against. He sicks some guards on Wolverine. Wolverine kicks the shit out of all of them, and basically says, I'm gonna kill these guys if you don't take me to Nitro right now. Prince Namor decides to let Wolverine pay a visit to Nitro, takes him to Nitro's holding cell, where we find out that Nitro has killed his interrogator, and so... Wolverine then bargains for for Prince Namor to let him, Wolverine, let him, Wolverine, take Nitro back to the surface. But Namor argues, you know what, dude? You're a criminal and you're a murderer, but somehow you don't want to break a promise to somebody? He's going to get justice here. Be sure of that. There's nothing that you specifically need to do here. We are going to take care of this. So Wolverine decides to accept that. He leaves, he leaves New Pangea, goes to a bar, and is basically doing his best to get drunk, where, whereupon uh, Prince Namor drops in and says, Look, I've got information that you're looking for. Paul was killed by Prince Namor before he could tell us everything that he found, but he did find the most important information, which is to say, the identity of Nitro's benefactors, an individual named Walter Declan, and Prince Namor goes on to say, "I know this man from my days in corporate in a, uh, from from my days in corporate America. In Atlantean, he would be called a P-shock. The word doesn't translate easily into English, but it roughly means an immoral person. My sources tell me that these days he's the CEO of Damage Control, Inc. Which just about leads us into Wolverine number 46. Basically, Wolverine pays a visit to Damage Control, Inc., which is to say the building that we paid a visit to earlier where people were shitting bricks about the possibility of their role in the Stamford incident being discovered. Wolverine doesn't talk to Walter, at least not right away. He first he first talks to Anne-Marie Hogue, the president of Damage Control, Inc., and Wolverine basically lets slip that Walter Declan gave mutant growth hormone to Nitro, the guy who blew up Stanford, and hey, isn't this a coincidence? Damage Control got the contract to clean up in in Stamford. Isn't that an interesting coincidence? Walter Declan barges into the meeting and tells Anne-Marie, shut the fuck up right now, and threatens Wolverine saying, "Hey dude, Shield agents are on their way right now. So, if you value your freedom, get out." So, Wolverine heads out, but not before we the readers find out that he's planted a that he's planted a a, a surveillance device inside of the office. He breaks in later on and reclaims the surveillance device, then takes it to a specialist in Texas who shows them all of the information that was found by, this, by the surveillance device, uh, art, device's uh, artificial intelligence program. And basically it goes like this. The technician says, let's start from the basic principles. Superhero fights supervillain, makes a big mess, Damage Control gets paid to clean up said mess, but what I'm seeing here from Damage Control's own records is Damage Control doing everything they can to increase the number of superhuman fights. The idea here is more fights equals more mess equals more money. And obviously then the Superhuman Registration Act is pretty much the mother load. In addition to to cleanup... They're getting government contracts for superhuman registration, evaluation, training, the works. And the basic principle that's that's being that's being discussed here really is profiteering. Where there's war, there's war there's there there are gonna be war profiteers. And so Wolverine then takes it upon himself to go to war with with damage control, first by destroying their assets, um, robbing them, destroying construction equipment, things like that. Basically, anything he can do to basically gum up the works and 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 cause problems for damage control. Because his basically his thinking on the matter is that. A corporation isn't really a person in the usual sense of the word, in that you can just put a bullet in somebody's head and call it a day. A corporation is an idea. It's an organization. And so it's theoretically impossible to kill. Wolverine's attitude about it is not really the case. It's harder, but you keep hacking away and hacking away and hacking away until there's nothing left. And in... And and I guess suppose I, I suppose pursuit of that principle, he breaks into a damage control Inc. holding facility where he's attacked by security guards who are armed with technology that, by all rights, they shouldn't have. They've got Stark Tech, Shield Tech, and other things that they technically shouldn't have. And then what you realize is they've been pilfering technology from the destruction sites that they've cleaned up. That's how they're able to. Bring to bear all of this specialized equipment against uh, against Wolverine, including Adamantium razor blades, which they then sink into Wolverine's neck, which just about leads us into Wolverine number forty seven. The razor blade breaks down part of the way through, so they're not a they're not exactly able to uh, hack Wolverine's head off. the most they're able to do is cut his throat after which the razor blade breaks down so wolverine's down for the count at least for the moment but then his healing factor kicks in he takes out the the security guards and right around then a a, a contingent from shield shows up led by the sentry who beats the shit out of wolverine and when wolverine comes to he finds himself in shield custody Around his neck, he's wearing a device that basically stops his, his mutant powers. The thinking being that, by Maria Hill, the thinking being that he's basically caged now, and he cannot escape. And Wolverine points out, you know what, that's a really common misconception. People assume that because of the fact that my claws come from my mutation, that my claws are a superpower. He then uses his claws to shred the machinery apart while saying, but my claws are not actually a superpower. They're just derived from a superpower, a genetic mutation to be precise. He escapes from the shield uh, helicarrier and free falls down to the ground. And at that moment, he becomes aware of the fact that, you know what, he's still wearing the inhibitor around his neck, and that means it's going to be a pretty messy landing if he can't take off the inhibitor between now and the time he goes splat. But luckily, he manages to survive falling, and then he returns to the shield, shield, I'm sorry, not shield. He returns to the damage control corporate headquarters, where Walter Declan is in the process of being relieved of his duties as the CEO by the by the board members wolverine crashes the board meeting tells the board members get the hell out and then he and walter declan who's now hyped up on mutant growth hormone duke it out they fall out the window and crash on the street below beat the shit out of each other for a while before wolverine puts his claws through walter declan's head and kills declan which just about leads us to Wolverine number 48. Basically, this is, in a weird kind of way, this is a sort of a, a summary of the previous issues. It Basically, all of the times that Wolverine died or nearly died, it's not just... It's not exactly a metaphor. It's not that his body was destroyed. No, his soul truly did die, but the fact that he's got the healing factor would always pull his his soul out of wherever it went and bring him back to life. Or at least that's one way of looking at it. But, you know, because of the fact that this is a comic book... They don't want to say for sure that this is, in fact, the afterlife. This could be going on all in Wolverine's head while his body recovers from whatever trauma he's undergone. For instance, the explosion in the forest by Nitro. It could be that this is just shit that's flashing through his, his mind as his body is healing. That is possible. And so, basically, we see this again and again and again. Every time that Wolverine has a for lack of a better term, near-death experience in, in this storyline, this is the shit that he sees. He sees ghosts of Jean Grey and then other things that, frankly, he isn't completely ready to talk about with anybody, which is important because this entire conversation that he's, that he's having, this is not an internal monologue. This is actually dialogue that he's having with Amir, the Atlantean princess that uh, we find out he's been doinkin'. Uh, this whole time in this whole issue. So, that's kind of interesting. The end. So, what did I think? You know, I find this story, it's kind of fascinating, and it's also satisfying, in that this kind of plays upon the nature of news cycles. Because what I find in life is that Anytime a major newsworthy event happens, obviously it's a newsworthy event, but what ends up happening is there's the news story. This is all the shit that the jack-offs and the media are talking about. And then there's what, in fact, happened. And I think a good example of that is, is Columbine. Now... I try not to get partisan on this show, but let's face it, Civil War is a little bit of a a partisan storyline to begin with, so I do hope you'll forgive me bringing up a partisan issue, right? Now, no matter which side of the gun control debate you find yourself on, I think we can all agree that the media narrative surrounding Columbine was all about gun control. Now, the reason that's interesting is because Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, they broke something like two or three local gun laws for Littleton, Colorado. They broke something like eight or nine gun laws for the uh, state gun laws for the state of Colorado. And then they broke a minimum of something like eight or nine federal gun laws. And this was all before they ever pulled the trigger and killed anybody. They'd broken all of those laws. And for whatever reason, that was not the thrust of the media narrative surrounding the Columbine shooting. What everyone seemed to be talking about was gun control, that somehow we need more, in spite of the fact that the very laws that everybody seemed to be talking about, in fact, already existed. And there's really no gun law that you could have passed that would have prevented the Columbine shootings from happening. There's just not. I mean, people may not want to hear that, but... There's really In a country where people are allowed to own guns privately, there is no model whereby you can prevent uh, incidents like Columbine from happening. The laws that are supposed to prevent it were not being enforced. And so because of that, the Columbine shooting, was, was, it was possible for that to happen. So same kind of a thing is happening here in Civil War. You've got this battle with uh, the New Warriors and Nitro. Nitro explodes. And then he takes out a, uh, an elementary school of small children. And the media story for this, the narrative, became out-of-control superheroes. They're killing children. The story wasn't the New Warriors failed to stop Nitro from exploding. No. The the issue became superheroes, and 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 it kind of has to be because that's sort of the entire fucking purpose of this story. I mean, that's the entire thrust of it. So that part is okay. I'm just saying that in this story, what really happened is not, in fact, the media narrative. The media narrative became out of control superheroes, but it that's really not exactly what happened in happened in Stanford, and nobody. It's like nobody spared a, a, a second thought. It's like nobody spared a second thought to Nitro and what exactly he was guilty of and the problems that he caused. So Wolverine, though, has not forgotten about that. He, he, he wanted to... His goal in, in taking down Nitro... There's a strong argument that, you know what, that's not even the point anymore. I mean, all of the issues and conflicts of Civil War spring from Nitro, but they're not really about Nitro. And the fact is, this shit is on the table now. Arresting Nitro isn't going to isn't gonna change anything. Killing Nitro is not going to change anything. Even if a superhero goes out and arrests Nitro, it's not going to help anything. At this point, the die's been cast and i and the reason i'm being kind of a pain in the balls about this is that i find that so fucking easy to believe, you know? because so often in these in in these huge news stories, the truth is almost irrelevant. You know, the actual incidents that happened, that's not even the point. The point is there's a media agenda, or there's a media narrative. There's a story that they want to tell. There's the angle that they're pursuing. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what, in fact, actually happened with that story. So, I don't know. It's this... This whole premise is, to me, I just, I love this story because, number one, one of the, one of the um, uh, criticisms that I've heard most often about Civil War as a story and as a concept is that after the first couple of pages of Civil War, number one, we pretty much never hear from Nitro again. And obviously, that's not true. But number two, it's like he's not being held accountable for his actions. And, you know, that's a very valid criticism. It's completely lucid and legitimate. But here's the thing. This is the way news media tells stories. It's that simple. And so, I'm not saying that those people are wrong. I'm simply saying that this is the way that that journalism is practiced, especially in America. And so in relation to all of that, I find the entire I I, I guess the the amnesia people seem to have about the true culprit of this thing, I find I, I find that just so realistic and so easy to believe. The other thing is this kind of feeds into, my, you know, theories of my own that I have about, about war. I, te- I used to joke, you know, back in my younger days that when you come right down to it, war is really just another government program, you know? And there may even be an, uh, an extent to which that's kind of true. But the simple fact of the matter is that wars tend to be started by external forces. And what I mean is, it's not necessarily the two countries that are going to war with one another who are starting the trouble. Usually, there are people behind the scenes who are egging one side or the other or both. They're egging both sides on. And certainly, they have their reasons. Usually, though, it comes down to profit. There is an obscene amount of profit to be made in war. War is one of the most lucrative things ever. I mean, people can say whatever they want about credit cards, about uh, whatever else. Uh, War is by far the most lucrative industry known to mankind. You know, if you manage it right, war, there are no words to describe just how profitable war can be, at least for certain people. You know, if you're in the right line of business, war can be a godsend to you. And that that whole type of war profiteering thing is definitely going on here, where, yeah, Damage Control Inc. is basically responsible for everything that happened in Civil War. It's their fault. And they not only aren't going to answer for that, but no one really cares about the fact that, about the truth of it, that, you know what? This whole conflict is, is happening for absolutely, positively, no reason whatsoever, except for the fact that some huge multinational conglomerate wants a big payday. And so they're going out of their way to stir up as many superhero fights as they possibly can using more mutant growth hormone and putting that out on the streets. And their greed has single-handedly destroyed a, an elementary school full of small children and nobody gives a shit because the media narrative is all about out-of-control superheroes rather than a greedy corporation. The actual perpetrators are virtual non-issues in all of this. And again, I find that so fucking easy to believe. And I don't know. I mean, all around, this, this leads back to a great big part of my affection for Civil War and just how realistic and plausible the concepts are. You know, I mean, obviously, it's not all that realistic to see two superpowered individuals wearing costumes and capes and shit flying around and beating the shit out of each other in the streets. Obviously we don't see that, but I guess the core conflicts and machinations going on behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff, this guys, there is no fiction here. I mean, this type of stuff happens in the real world all the fucking time. And you know, I don't want to sound like some kind of loony conspiracy theory guy, but guys, look at who supplied all of the military gear for the Vietnam War. It's actually kind of scary to figure out just how much influence they had over the escalation of the war in Vietnam and then how much money they made because of the fact that this is a full-scale fucking war now. And to me, it's just it's really fucking scary that these huge, unaccountable giant corporations can wield this much influence over America, since since I'm American. They can wield this much influence over America's war powers, you know? And like I say, all of this I find incredibly easy to believe. Now, to get, I guess, more into, I guess, the nuts and bolts of this specific comic, it needs to be said that I'm not, again, I'm not a huge X-Men expert, And certainly I'm no expert when it comes to Wolverine. I mean, I know what I've seen in cartoons. I know what I've seen in the movies. And I know what I've seen in, you know, a couple of comics that I've picked up here and there. But don't ever think that I'm some kind of huge Wolverine expert. Or for that matter, even really a huge Marvel expert. Because it's fucking, it's just not true. That having been said, though, I kind of like the idea of Wolverine as the sort of I guess, tough guy. He's not exactly a philosopher, but he's not stupid either. He's able, he's, he's capable of figuring out how exactly all of this bullshit fits together and how best to go about resolving this problem. Because he has a funny way of simplifying things down to their most simplistic form, which is to say, if you keep cutting away, eventually it's going to die. That's true of Sentinels, That's true of people. It must surely be true of giant corporations. And unfortunately, we never actually get a chance to see whether or not that's actually true. But Wolverine did put a big hurt on Damage Control Inc. There's no doubt about that. So that part makes a lot of sense. And I I find that, you know, just Wolverine, he's very much in character, at least as far as how I have always interpreted Wolverine as a character, This is pretty much it, you know, the kind of 2 foot the sort of two-fisted, hard, uh, you know, heavy-drinking, hard-living type, you know? And honestly, every time I read Wolverine's dialogue in all of these issues, what I was hearing, it wasn't the Wolverine from the animated series from the 90s, you know, the uh, early 90s, uh, that show that was on Fox— because I don't know if it's accurate to call that X-Men the animated series cuz I'm not sure if that really even narrows anything down but what I instead what I heard was actually Hugh Jackman's voice for some reason there's something about that voice that seems very Wolverine like at least as I was reading this story that's that's the voice that I was that I was hearing uh in my head whenever I would read Wolverine's dialogue now I'm a fan of him uh, of uh Umberto Ramos from way back. I remember enjoying a lot of his work on Impulse and other things too, but really Impulse was kind of my introduction to Umberto Ramos and I was really happy to find out that uh you know he's he's kind of made a little bit of a cottage industry for himself or he had anyway, made a cottage industry um drawing Wolverine and I I dig the sort of cartoony Manga style. I'm not real big on manga as a form, but I do at times like sort of manga-influenced art, and you can't really separate the manga influence from Ramos's style. Now, that having been said, though, sometimes his anatomy is just a little bit questionable because it's like these people have giraffe necks or something like that. You know, Wolverine has, I mean, of all the characters, he's probably got the most normal neck, and maybe female characters have normal necks, but otherwise everyone else, it's like they got this weird fucked up looking giraffe neck. There's a, um, there's a moment where uh, Tony Stark is uh, chatting uh, chatting up Wolverine in uh, Wolverine number 43. And of course they don't number the friggin' pages, but this is basically the page where, uh, where uh, Stark says, do I really have to give you the this is how we're different from them speech? and that it's where that dialogue balloons on and actually in that panel if you can just imagine where uh, tony's shoulders must, uh, from a from an anatomical standpoint where they have to be inside of his armor his neck has got to be like a foot and a half long in order for his head to be where it is you know and it's just really weird looking now otherwise you know i really like i say i really enjoy ramos's style and you know, I think it's really cool, but it's just, this is just fucked up looking. So anyway, I'm not saying it's bad. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying it's awesome. It's just, there's something that goes on though with, uh, some aspects of his understanding of anatomy and physiology. I just don't think it's quite where it should be, but maybe that's just me. So, and that is pretty much the end of my brother fights brother, Civil War miniseries. Now, obviously, there's a lot more bullshit to talk about when it comes to Civil War. And in fact, someday I may actually talk about that. But at least for right now, I just, I really don't have enough time for it because of stuff that's coming up in the future, which hopefully I think, actually, you know what? I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, I'm not going to announce anything here because my plan may actually change. But if you can think of other movies that are coming out right now and the fact that um, I seem to want to do series lately that relate to movie releases you may be able to guess what my uh, next couple of episodes may be all about so at least in in the weeks to come now as to next week um, what I've decided to do is actually I didn't decide to do it what happened was I just got a little bit pissed off about goings on with DC comics and so I just needed kind of a dumping ground so next week I'm going to be talking about DC comics stuff that they're doing right stuff that they're doing wrong which is probably going to be the longer part of the conversation. And it's really just, think of it as me just blowing off steam. So don't give it any more credibility than that. So, but anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know you can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there's no minimum donation be a show sponsor today if you shop at amazon.com please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there if you use this link to go to amazon and then you shop two true freaks gets a cut of what you buy it doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. For internal use only. Subject to change without notice. Times are approximate. Simulated picture. Enlarged to show detail. Some assembly required. Many will enter, few will win. Batteries not included. Use only as directed. No other warranty expressed or implied. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Use other side for additional listings. All models are over the age of 18.